Good Thursday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know all of you are looking forward to tomorrow being Friday. I know I am, but nonetheless, it's good to be back on the air. And here we are once again talking about Founding Martyr, the life and death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's lost hero by Christian de Spigna. Well, tonight's podcast is going to talk about the time frame between 1772 into the beginning of 1774, and I'm sure some of you out there are wondering, how much can we cram in, or should I say, how much can I cram in in a short amount of time? Well, believe me, I can make it work, and I have done my homework, and by doing my homework in enough time, I can give you all the necessary and accurate information behind tonight's uh, podcast, but for any other uh, podcast session as well. And I should also point out, too, that, um, you know, I'm not um, copying everything verbatim. In other words, I'm not uh, plagiarizing, but it is important to bring uh, someone back to life who has been uh, largely forgotten for a number of years. And thanks, But thanks to Christian de Spigna, he has uh, brought back uh, Dr. Warren or should I say Dr. Joseph Warren, he's brought him back into a spotlight where he uh, properly belongs. And even though I read this book about a year ago, uh, rereading it again has made me has helped uh, make me become all the more appreciative of what this man did in a short period of time in his life. And he does deserve to be in the annals of... Um, of most uh, prominent uh, figures in the American Revolution era. So anyways, our first uh, bonus question for tonight is the following. Given that Joseph Warren was already a well-respected doctor in the community, what unique position did he hold from 1769 to 1772? He was an almshouse physician. Let me ask you this. What is an almshouse The answer is the following. It's a form of charitable housing designed to provide lodging to those who are labeled as poor or, I should say, destitute. Almshouses were originally um, formed as an extension to churches. So think about it. There was a time for many years where... uh, The church, most notably in Virginia, for example, being the Church of England or what we would refer to as the Anglican Church, it was seen as its own uh, governmental institution or, or in other words, like a charitable institution that looked after uh, those primarily who were destitute and poor who could not um, care for themselves or had no proper means of um, being able to um, take care of themselves on their own. So in 1769, uh, Dr. Warren made roughly 730 visits to patients living under some form of charitable housing. That is a lot of visits, but he did it out of his own good. Because remember, folks, Dr. Warren caters to people from all ranks of society. Yes, he caters to the most prominent Tory families in Boston, as well as uh, Whig uh, families, but he also caters to the middling, being the middle class, to the lower working classes, as well as to the destitute and poor. And if any of y'all are wondering, 
uh, how much he made uh, money-wise, he made nearly 200 pounds. I'm not sure what that would be in today's money, but it was probably a, a good amount of money. But of course, Dr. Warren wasn't chasing the almighty dollar, as that phrase goes today. He was, um, he was looking after the community as a whole. And his practice was the largest and most well-regarded throughout Boston. I would have to say that for um, going to um, almshouses, or should I say not just going to an almshouse, but by being an almshouse physician, that ought to um, give someone like him even more prominent recognition. So here's another uh, bonus question. In order for resistance towards British authority to stay alive, what bold step does Joseph Warren and Samuel Adams take? Or they go about forming the Boston Committee of Correspondence, which allowed people from the outlying towns outside of Boston to network together in promoting a united front towards dealing with England. Well, a, a local committee of correspondence is going to be, you know, one that will allow, like I said a moment ago, what's unique about this is that people from all around the outskirts of Boston can uh, write to one another. Uh, they may not know each other necessarily by names, but they can somehow find a way to get the word out uh, to discuss, hey, this is how we feel about uh, British uh, treatment towards us, and I'm sure it's very similar in the next town, but what are some... Um, things that we have in common that can help us become even more united. Now, it is fair to say, though, that other colonies would go about doing the same thing in terms of setting up their own form of intercolonial corresponding networks, very similar to what had already been established in Boston. So eventually it's going to lead to something else here down the road soon, that will help uh, bring the other 12 colonies along with Massachusetts um, together um, to be seen on a more uh, united front. Was John Adams, here's a good question right here, given that John and Samuel Adams are cousins, was John Adams involved in the Committee of Correspondence Networking? Believe it or not, uh, John Adams was not involved in this. By the time this uh, committee of uh, correspondence in Massachusetts is taking place, or just starting, John Adams had moved his family back to Braintree, and ironically, that's where Adams himself was born and uh, raised as a child. But they lived there for a period of time, however, before returning back to Boston in 1772. We must remember this about John Adams. John Adams is a patriot. But at the same time, he is not the type of patriot who feels, or not maybe not patriot, rather leader in this uh, Whig movement who believes that he needs to be at the forefront of every event. In other words, it's important to be involved, but he sees involvement in, in organizations as something that also has boundaries. In other words, in his eyes, being a part of the uh, Whig movement, or what would later become known as the Sons of Liberty, while yes, it's important to be passionate about it, but you can't make it your whole life. So for John Adams, 
here, you know, two years earlier, 1770, he uh, represented uh, eight uh, British soldiers in the infamous Boston Massacre trials. And while Adams didn't receive, you know, he did receive some threats, but they weren't life-threatening style threats. But it is fair to say that John Adams took a huge risk with um, defending the accused and after that event, I think it's fair to say that he just wanted um, time away from the spotlight. You can't blame the guy. So, but the bottom line is, is that somebody has to keep this movement going. And thank heavens there are people like Joseph Warren and Sam Adams, John's cousin, who are passionate enough about keeping the um, light or keeping the flame going. Well, by 1773, how many children do Joseph and Elizabeth Warren have? The answer is four, but the couple did lose a child not long ago. Did many of Joseph Warren's friends experience the loss of a child or of children? The answer is yes. And yes, losing a child, even in today's time, is a very tragic thing for a parent or uh, parents to have to deal with. But in the 18th century, it's fair to say that losing children was a more common thing because children in colonial America, most children didn't make it past the age of 10. Now, through misfortunes, or should I say tragedies, that involve losing a child, this um, circumstance in the case for Joseph Warren, since he and his wife had lost a child, through this kind of misfortune, it allowed Joseph, it enabled Joseph Warren to become closer to fellow patriot leaders like Paul Revere, John Hancock, to Samuel and John Adams. And I think it is fair to say that Joseph Warren and his wife and his wife Elizabeth were indeed a happy couple. What was one way, or should I say method, for, show, for a couple to show their affection towards one another in 18th century times? Believe it or not, it was through the use of jewelry. Here's a good example. Um, fashionable jewelry pieces were often an example of one's love for their spouse, close relative to child. Now, we have to remember, too, folks, uh, there's no such thing as cameras in the 18th century. So, one way to go about uh, identifying your um, love for a significant other would be through jewelry. There has to be something tangible that you can have on a daily basis that can um, exemplify your uh, affection for a significant other. In the spring of 1773, Joseph and Elizabeth Warren had been married for just over eight years, but sadly, life takes an unexpected turn for the worse when Elizabeth, out of nowhere, becomes gravely ill. Given just how knowledgeable Joseph Warren himself was medically, I hate to say this, but all of his expertise sadly would not be enough to save his beloved wife who died on April 27th of 1773 at the age of 26 and left Joseph a widower with four children. 
Mrs. Warren was laid to rest three days later on April 30th. Warren himself had even written a poem in her honor. Now think about this, folks. His wife, Elizabeth, is only 26 years old and has left behind four children and a husband, being, being Joseph, who is now a widower. I can't imagine um, losing your loved one at that age. But we must remember, too, that um, if men, if children, especially a young boy and a young girl, made it past the age of 10, remember, they were considered to be adults by 18th century standards. So it was very common for a 15-year-old boy to get married or, or for a boy to get married between the ages of 15 and 20 uh, to marry a young girl at the age of 15. I mean, that's what it was back then. And, um, and then start a family right away. But, to, uh, but for Elizabeth to die at age 26 and leave behind four children, it's, um, it's very sad. And it is fair to say in colonial times, when a spouse died, a widow or, um, or even a widower would often remarry very quickly. And it was done for a variety of reasons. It was done out of convenience, necessity, as well as love. I'll take a good example uh, from uh, Colonial Williamsburg, and not just Colonial Williamsburg, but um, if a husband um, ran a tavern, and let's, I'm going to use a fictitious name, let's say a Mr. Jones was, uh, ran a tavern, and he died unexpectedly, and he leaves behind a wife with, say, six or eight children. What, what would have been the right thing to have uh, been allowed in that situation? History has shown that more often than not, when a husband who ran a tavern died unexpectedly, the, um, the uh, court system allowed for um, the wife to become the head owner of the tavern. After all, the wife would need to find a way to support her family. And then by doing so, um, by allowing the wife to run a tavern, they were uh, being looked after not only by the community, but they had a place that they could still call home. It wouldn't have been fair to have uh, left that wife and family out on the street. So the bottom line is, is that, um, not to get off track or anything, but in terms of necessity, if the wife didn't remarry, at least in this case she has a place that she could still call home and a business that she can, um, that she can run uh, with the assistance of others who work at the tavern, but she can still find a way, um, a proper channel for supporting her um, uh, larger network being her children. Did Joseph Warren keep busy after his wife's passing? Yes, he still kept his medical practice going, and it, was, and it remained strong, along with working amongst other radicals in the fight against British oppression. He was also surrounded by many immediate family members who uh, lived nearby and helped, looked at, 
and helped looked after his children when necessary. Well, here's a bonus question. Uh, given Joseph Warren was already a Mason, did he find Masonry itself to be an effective tool for luring Patriot recruits? Yes. Those who joined into Masonry benefited from many things, especially the social and political aspects. Here's an example that can uh, prove to what I just said a moment ago. Joseph Warren and Paul Revere, these two men were Masons, and they worked well together from a political standpoint. It turns out that Paul Revere himself would become one of Joseph Warren's most trusted political allies. These two men had a lot in common. They each sadly lost their fathers during their teenage years, along with experiencing the death of a child. And what I find to be very sad and scary in a way is that both men lost their wives within the same week. It's bad enough when one one family member or one family that say you know very well loses a loved one, but it's even scarier when two families who know each other well enough, who know each other very well, lose a significant other in the same week. And it's probably safe to say that that was a frequent thing that probably did happen in colonial times. It probably happened more often than we would ever like for it to have um, been known, but it probably did. And believe it or not, Paul Revere would name one of his sons Joseph Warren Revere in, his, in the marriage to his second wife. Interesting enough, Paul Revere had eight children from his first marriage, and when he remarried, he had another eight. He and his wife and his new wife had eight more children. A lot of mouths to feed. I don't know if all sixteen of those children made it to adulthood, but we must remember too: the more children people had back in those days, it was also a means to ensure that okay, if you had ten children, you hoped that five or six would make it to adulthood. For Paul Revere, having Joseph Warren was a huge connection because Revere himself didn't come from, um, well, I mean, Warren himself wasn't born into wealth, but Paul Revere didn't attend college like Joseph Warren did. Paul Revere obviously was a tradesman, and there's nothing wrong with that, but had it not been for the connection um, which he had with Joseph Warren, uh, Revere himself more than likely would not have been able to have worked um, his way up into upper-level status of uh, the Whig leadership. Here's the bonus question that, um, that would answer uh, what I talked about earlier with, um, what do you call it, with uh, networking. Did the establishment of the Committees of Correspondence bring all 13 colonies closer than previously before? Uh, the answer is yes. How so? Well, all 13 colonies have, are starting to gradually have something in common. They don't like um, how the Crown and Parliament are treating them. They don't like the fact that there is no proper representation. 
They don't like the fact that so many restrictions are impacting their daily lives to where they they can't even go about doing business in their own um, in their own colonial settings. It is um, fair to say that Joseph Warren was the only person appointed as a member to every instruction committee in Massachusetts between 1769 and 1774. It is very fair to say that Joseph Warren did not miss out on anything. I don't know in a sense if that's an exciting thing or not, but the bottom line is, is that this guy was not afraid to put his own life on the line. I mean, he's out there in the forefront. I mean, he's the one that's uh, taking a stand on so many things. But it's a good thing because the people of Boston do need someone, not just one person. They, they need multiple people, but if they can rely on one person, if they had to rely on one person who's going to be on, the, on just about every committee, it's going to be Joseph Warren. And by early 1774... And this is very important, folks. But by early 1774, Joseph Warren, or I should say Dr. Warren, no longer has ties to Boston's prominent Tory families. These families are the Hutchinsons, the Olivers, Clarks, to Hallowells. Warren himself feels very betrayed, most notably by Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson and Lieutenant Governor Andrew Oliver, whom took various actions by colonists out of context. In other words, these two men um, who are of high um, government ranking status in Massachusetts made several um, what I would like to refer to as egregious accusations. And if any of you all don't know what egregious means, it's another word for inappropriate made inappropriate accusations about uh, colonists, um, most notably people of Massachusetts. And when Joseph Warren learned about these um, egregious um, accusations, he knew that um, reconciliation was just no longer possible. And his ever-growing Whig uh, philosophy, or let alone ideology, made it become impractical to where he himself and his Tory clientele no longer felt comfortable around one another. This is a very bold move. It's an even, you know, even some Tory, Tory families could say that Dr. Warren has become a traitor. He's engaged in acts of treason. Well, Joseph Warren can say that, say on the opposite end that he feels that the um, that the loyalists have betrayed him by um, by tolerating uh, conduct that is unbecoming on the part of Governor Thomas Hutchinson and his lieutenant governor. In other words, these families feel that it's it's okay to. Um, make accusations about the opposing party, not just the opposing party, but members of the opposing party, and yet their claims don't have any merit. All right, here's a bonus question right here. Uh, we'll get, we're going to scoot um, backwards to the year 1773, but we'll get back to 1774 here shortly. But in 
On May 10th of 1773, what legislation did Parliament pass? The Tea Act. The Tea Act enabled the British East India Company, which was on the verge of bankruptcy, the right, in other words, Parliament gave them the right to obtain a monopoly on exportation of tax tea into the colonies. This is almost like a bailout right here. They know that this company is on the verge of bankruptcy, but they're going to find a way to bail them out by giving them a monopoly. Now, I can tell you this right now. The colonists see this as a direct violation of free trade, and they see this as British control over importation of goods coming into the colonies. I strongly share the views of the colonists right here, most notably those in Massachusetts. Question, was there an attempt led by North End caucus leaders like Joseph Warren whom requested that the Crown agents resign their commissions? Think about it now. There are the King and Parliament, or should I say the Crown and Parliament appointed five members who were already over in Massachusetts to... Um, they appointed five men who would um, oversee the um, the unloading of uh, tea take place and be sold to distributors who were, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, not just your everyday business people, but businessmen who obviously had allegiance to the crown. Well, Joseph Warren... Um, did request that these crown agents resign their commissions. But the agents assigned to sell the tea refused to budge. So yes, Warren did lead an attempt to get these men to resign. And when the uh, commission, when these agents refused to budge, it led to extreme violence. Now, of course, Warren was not a part of this extreme violence, but other angry mob uh, crowd um, individuals or members um, resorted to violence in destroying um, a warehouse uh, facility that um, would have been uh, where the tea would have uh, gone. Now, let me ask you this. How many... Um, well before I ask how many ships and all that, but when did the first cargo of tea arrive in Boston Harbor? It actually arrived six months after Parliament um, passes the uh, Tea Act on November 28th of 1773. That is when the first cargo of tea arrives into the Boston Harbor. But what I find unique is that this isn't just an ordinary um, standard voyage. In other words, the ship isn't just going to arrive into the harbor and the cruise, it's not like the crew's just going to get off the boat and say, oh, let's go unload the tea and let's go take it to um, our, the various uh, businesses who are dependent on it and loyal to the crown. It turns out that under British law, any vessel coming from England into uh, colonial America in this case, Massachusetts, had 20 days 
In this case, given that it was November 28th when uh, the first cargo of tea arrived into the Boston Harbor, given that it had 20 days, that meant it had up until roughly um, December 16th to unload the cargo and pay the taxes. In other words, it had 20, the vessel itself had 20 days up until midnight of December 16th to unload the cargo and pay the taxes. And some of you are wondering, well, what if the opposite had happened, took place? Well, if the opposite took place, then the crown itself could seize and sell all of the unloaded cargo. So there is some good and then there's some uncertainty with this. But I have a good feeling that if the cargo had not been unloaded, then it's very likely that uh, the British, under the Crown Authority, could have sold that tea to um, an outside third party, or let alone it uh, could have um, sent it to another uh, colony that um, where loyalist members would uh, be willing to take the um, the tea in uh, support of the crown. Bottom line is, a lot of things uh, could have happened. So anyways, how many ships are in Boston Harbor with tea? Oh, the answer is three. The names of the ships I find are interesting. They were the Eleanor, the Dartmouth, and the Beaver. Interesting, uh, the Dartmouth... There's an Ivy League um, university in uh, northern New Hampshire known as uh, Dartmouth uh, College. Well, it, uh, the college was named after um, after a, uh, a town in England known as Dartmouth, England. But uh, there was also a um, a ruler known as Lord Dartmouth. So, anyways, you have three ships in Boston Harbor with tea, and they. Altogether, there is more than roughly 340 chests of East India tea. All right, well, what's significant come December 16th, 1773? This is the deadline now, folks. The tea itself has not been um, unloaded, or the cargo of tea has not been unloaded off of any of these three ships. Joseph Warren and and some of his other fellow Masonic brothers gather at the Old South Meeting House, where many others had also met to discuss what should be done with the tea. Now, who's Francis Roch? Well, he's just an ordinary, ordinary, everyday person who does have connections to Joseph Warren and other uh, fellow Masonic brothers. Well, Francis Roch has applied to Governor Hutchinson for a pass, which would allow him to return the tea. The request was denied. So once Mr. Roch delivered the news, Sam Adams advised that nothing else could be done. But within a short time later, that evening, a handful of men disguised as Mohawk Indians boarded the three vessels and began dumping chests of tea into the harbor. Wow, that's um, pretty um, 
I don't know if I'd say fright. Well, frightening is 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 one possible way to sum it up, but it's also um, amazing just how quickly these men could assemble, or people that alone could assemble, and get um, access to the ships and start dumping the chests of tea into the harbor. I would have thought that the British, given their um, might as the mightiest empire in the world would have had enough common sense to have said, hey, we need men guarding these ships. We can't be fooled by these outsiders or by these um, assailants in Boston who are already causing enough trouble as it is. We've got to be on top of our game and protect these ships. Well, this is another good example of... um, not valuing um, those who might be uh, labeled as a lower sort. See, for many uh, people in England, most notably the British uh, military, they always seem to view the people of Massachusetts as inferior, and they don't seem to regard them with any, um, what do you call it, proper um, value, or let alone, I should say, dignity and respect. But what they fail to realize is that, okay, many of the people in Boston, they may not have the the finest line of clothing, they may not come from the finest stock, but yet they are actually smart people when it comes to uh, being able to uh, carry a rifle, being able to take aim and fire. They obviously know how to mobilize. I think these people know how to mobilize far better than, uh, than the British military, let alone But many of you are probably wondering, did Joseph Warren himself take part in dumping chests of tea into the harbor? Many historians have actually debated this, but most have come to the conclusion that Joseph Warren himself was not um, involved with dumping any chests of tea into the harbor. However, they can all agree that, and even I myself could too, that Warren himself was one of the leading figures behind the event. In other words, he probably did help coordinate um, the planning into uh, dumping the chests of tea into the harbor. By doing so, this would have given him an extensive network within um, the maritime industry because he did own um, a fair number of buildings around the harbor, So, if you own a fair number of buildings like him around the wharf or harbor, yeah, you're going to have a good insider's uh, connection into uh, the comings and goings that are going on. And what I find even more ironic and amazing is to think that this Tea Party event took place without any form of violence or let alone injury. Nobody was killed Nobody was severely wounded, and the Patriot leaders who were involved kept the mob crowds in check. Those mob crowds are, you know, the ones who are very unruly, inciting things left and right. Here's a good bonus question. How did Parliament respond to the dumping of tea? Well, I can tell you right now, they didn't take too, um, they didn't take too kindly of it, but between March In June of 1774, a set of laws known as the Coercive Acts are designed to punish the people of Boston 
or let alone the unruly citizens of Boston. These acts, known as the Coercive Acts, would later, be, later, would later come to be known as the Intolerable Acts. Intolerable, in other words, meaning that we are no longer tolerating this kind of uh, behavior, and it must come to an end. Well, here are a list of acts that I think are important to mention, because the intolerable acts, or let alone coercive acts, did not con- were not just confined to one area. In March of 1774, ba- Parliament uh, passes the Boston Port Act. In May of 1774, Parliament will pass the Massachusetts Government and Administration of Justice Acts. And in June of that year, the Quartering Act. I'll give you an example of two here that are noteworthy. The first being the Government Act, which basically said that council members would no longer be elected by the lower house. Remember, folks, the council members are the ones who advise the governor on what to um, support and not support legislation-wise. Um, so if the lower house is no longer in a, no longer going to be um, selecting council members, who's going to be doing it instead? They will be appointed by um, members of parliament in London or perhaps the king's uh, ministry. And to make matters worse, under this act, town meetings are only going to be held once a year unless the, govern- unless the governor himself approves a special meeting. Think about it. These town meetings were the livelihood or the lifeblood of Boston society. Now, how are people going to convene? Not just so much convene. How are they going to get together to be able to um, express the needs of the community as a whole? And if you think that's bad, how about the Port Act? That piece of legislation closed the entire port of Boston and relocated the governmental seat to Salem for temporary purposes until the people of Boston repaid back the destroyed tea. So Boston's economy now is in a um, bad state of... um, a bad shape, rather, a bad state of shape. Think about it. Commerce is coming in and out of Boston. And Boston has already um, lost its status as a as the leading port city. New York City now and Philadelphia have taken over the role. But by closing the port of Boston, it's almost like that famous saying goes, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Now, on June 1st, uh, which is the day the Port Act goes into effect, colonies like Virginia will hold a day, held a day of fasting and prayer to show solidarity. And solidarity is another word of, se- of uh, what do you call it, of um, coming together, saying that, okay, we may not have been involved directly in the situation, but we are with you. And as a matter of fact, even colonies like Virginia... And I want to say Pennsylvania, and I want to say um, a, a few other colonies elsewhere uh, sent provisions, sent uh, a handful of provisions to Boston. To, in other words, that was their way of saying, hey, we're with you on this. If one port closes and another one closes, 
we feel the same rippling effect. Even if one port did not close, but the port of Boston did, um, the, who, who's to say that the next major city in town will be uh, vulnerable? I think it's, I, I do know that Charleston, South Carolina shared uh, Massachusetts's, symp, uh, shared the, the sympathy and pain that uh, the people of Boston went through because once they learned about the, the port closure in Boston, uh, many um, leaders in Charleston, South Carolina became convinced that they would become the next um, target. So the Port Act uh, passage led Joseph Warren to call for a boycott on all import and exported uh, goods that, in, that involved uh, trading between England and the West Indies. Now, in May of 1774, even more change is going to come in Massachusetts. A prominent British general, and his name will be mentioned um, free, uh, a little bit more often uh, in the next uh, podcast sessions. His name is General Thomas Gage. He becomes the new royal governor, replacing Thomas Hutchinson. Thomas Hutchinson was uh, did not have was not able to have a firm grip on the situation in Massachusetts. So the uh, Crown and Parliament believe that given that they need a governor who has m- more of a military figure, that to the uh, Tories in Boston, they welcome this as a sign of military rule. And they also welcome General uh, Thomas Gage because they feel that he is someone who can establish a better um, sense of law and order. And with the arrival of Thomas Gage as a new royal governor, did did radical leaders like Warren and Sam Adams see themselves as being more vulnerable? Yes, they did. But they still managed to keep their heads up by finding new ways to mobilize against the current crown policies. So yes, there is a huge change in governmental leadership. Now for Joseph Warren, yes, he's thrilled that Governor Thomas Hutchinson has been removed. But now he's got to be all the more concerned about Thomas Gage because Gage is now going to bring in um, troops Remember, the troops were already removed out of Boston four years earlier after the massacre. But now a new um, sign of reality is coming into play. And that is not just a new royal governor, but he's going to be bringing in um, troops who will will go to whatever means they have to go to to restore peace to Boston. But you know what? If tensions have already been this bad, since 1768 when the first go-around with British troops came in, why would anybody think that, um, that things are going to get any better? They're not. But remember, folks, the Crown doesn't want to be intimidated. Do you think the people of Boston want to be intimidated? No. But if you're the Crown in Parliament, you've got 13 colonies who are probably your most valuable possessions in North America. Uh, you're not going to give this up without a fight. 
Well, folks, we've uh, covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Uh, thank you for uh, listening in, and uh, have a good rest of your evening, and uh, talk to you all again soon. Take care.